previously on The Youth Element. You hear that? Yes, it's back to school season, everyone. But as we know, school isn't all fun and games. Not here, and definitely not across East Asia. We are really pressurized at that time because classes usually start at like 8 until or 3 or 4, but usually in senior forms, like we will get the extra classes because we have to chase after the curriculum. At that time, the only thing in my mind is to get into university. Comparisons are not all that uncommon. Your mother or your family members will always, always compare you, you with other friends, sons, or daughters. That also causes a lot of unintentional stress to the, the high school kids or college kids. It's endless comparison between other people. Working hard isn't always the solution. I think teenagers in Hong Kong facing a lot of pressure and expectations from teachers, from the society, and their parents. Getting undergraduate is like a must for everyone, so parents and every relative tell you you, you got to go to college. Okay. So you've made it out of college. Now what? What sort of future are you marching towards now? Well, if you're a male in South Korea or Taiwan, whatever it is might have to be put on hold for a year or two. Because, well, your national duty calls. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Justin. And I'm Linda. And you're listening to The, the Youth, Youth Element, Element, a podcast series on East Asia's millennials. Over the course of five weeks, we travel to five cities in East Asia. Shanghai, Taipei, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Seoul. To listen to the voices of millennials and learn more about contemporary East Asia through their views and the stories of their own lives. Stay with us on The Youth Element. When we think about the concept of youth cultures, the military isn't something that necessarily pops into my mind. Yeah, and it's definitely not the first topic I'd associate with millennials or what it means to be living as a youth in East Asia either. But if you do think about it, the military is definitely something that plays a large role in many of our cases, and especially so in South Korea and in Taiwan, where military service is mandatory. That's right. So in this episode of The Youth Element, Join us as we explore how South Korea and Taiwan's military service is more than just a stage in a young man's life. We'll be looking at not only how our current cohort of youth feel about the service and its purpose in their respective societies, but we'll also look at how other aspects of life and culture is influenced by the military, from geopolitics to your favorite K-pop band. And later, we'll also take a quick peek into how this topic of the military plays out more informally in the lives of our peers in China as well, and in ways that you might not expect. So stay tuned to find out more as we march on forward with episode two of The Youth Element. I think I can speak for a lot of young men when I say that we're fortunate we don't have conscription here in Canada. Yeah, do you remember learning about the two conscription crises, the two that almost tore the country apart in high school history? Oh man, it's been a while since I studied Borden versus Barassa. I should probably brush up on my Canadian history. But for our counterparts in South Korea and Taiwan, conscription is an inescapable part of the past present, and likely the future as well. I guess, because military service is not at all a normal consideration in my life here in Canada, it's hard for me to imagine what it must be like to be drafted. And it's hard to fathom that this is actually something that pretty much half the population has to go through at some point or another. 
That's right. All men with a South Korean or Taiwanese citizenship has to enlist in the military sometime between the age of 18 to 35 or 19 to 36, respectively, including those with dual citizenship. Failure to do so without any reasonable cause is a punishable offense that will even serve you jail time or result in you needing to revoke your citizenship. It'd be kind of like if Ryan Gosling had to pause his Hollywood career when he starred in The Notebook back in 2004 and had to come back to Canada and complete his two years in the military service. Kind of difficult to imagine, isn't it? Well, this is the reality for all males. Other than some Olympians, no one is exempt. Not even your favorite K-pop star. So on that note, let's start off this discussion with South Korea. In fact, when we think of K-pop, we don't really think about the military, do we? But this is an incredibly sensitive pair of issues, and especially in a context where the entertainment industry plays such a huge role in the country's soft power and its economy, military service definitely isn't a topic that we can ignore. Yeah, and this discussion comes at a pretty timely moment for me personally, because, okay, so in my high school days, I was a big, big, big fan of this boy group called Big Bang, and I've been out of touch with all the K-pop celebrity gossip for a few years now. Sure. Are you sure you don't still have that Big Bang poster in your room, Linda? Okay, no, that was in high school, and I told you that in confidence. But okay, fine. No shame. Anyways, so I recently learned that my once-upon-a-time K-pop fandom is now on a hiatus after like 10 successful years as a band in the industry. And this is because one of their members, Top, or T.O.P., the eldest of the group, had to leave for his military service. This was all over my Facebook feed. Because you were following Big Bang and the individual members on social media. Okay, again, no shame. So anyways, T.O.P. has unfortunately found himself in some bigger issues since then. But I'm sure I'm not alone when I say that I was pretty devastated by all of this. For those who are not followers of the Korean wave, it's the popular rise of Korean music, culture, and dramas. There's indeed a significant crossover between discussions surrounding the military and the entertainment industry. So it's not uncommon to find on some of the most popular K-pop websites a list of possible celebrities who have put their careers on hold to serve in the military. There is even a super popular drama that talked about the Korean military service, called Descendants of the Sun, which romanticized the life of the military troops. But like the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, we know that things aren't always as rosy as they seem on those big HD TVs. In fact, the relationship between popular culture and the military actually has quite a history not short of its own real-life drama. According to some of our interviewees in Seoul, we learned that the quickest way for a celebrity to completely fall off the face of stardom is to evade their military duty altogether. Yep. Remember Psy? He may have managed to make it huge in North America with his hit Gangnam Style, but before that, he was actually at the center of two big controversies because of attempted draft evasion. That goes for a handful of other very, very big male celebrities as well. Here's a recent graduate from Seoul, Sarah, for a bit more on this. Okay, so we have a history of a celebrity with the army. So Yoo Sung Joon, Steven Yu, was crazy, like crazy popular idol back in time. I loved him too. I mean, he was like incredible in uh, 2000, like early 2000. He was even like um, face, like a promotional, like a celebrity saying, oh, people, let's go to the army. I will go to the army. And then, oh, and then, and then he said he will. That's how he worked. And that's how he postponed it. And then one day he said, oh, because he's dual, dual national nationality with the uh, United States. And he went there, never came back. And people felt we were betrayed, like you say you go. I mean, that's why we all believed you and all those things. And our country actually banned his like, entry to Korea. So it, it, they are actually going on a loss right now. And he, he lost for the first one, and then I think he's still going on. 
Another incident our interviewee shared with us was about a rapper named MC Mong. Apparently, he had a ridiculous amount of teeth removed right before he was going to enlist, and he basically got a doctor's note saying that he was unfit to serve because of that. Naturally, people were not impressed, and legal proceedings were filed against him as well. He won the case and was somehow able to prove that the teeth pulling was not done on purpose. So, had he lost the case, this would have been a criminal offense. But he won and didn't have to spend years in jail or in the military. But this came at the cost of his entire career. He'll always be associated with dodging the draft, essentially betraying his national duty and betraying the trust of his fans. Was the teeth pulling really worth it in the end? That's something to chew on. And it's not even just these individual cases that have been the source of a lot of controversy. Julie explained to us how there's been a lot of backlash from the general public, especially from the youth, towards what they perceive to be a corrupt and unfair culture of elitism within the military system as a whole. Five six years ago, there was a special unit only for the celebrities called Yonebyeong, Yon Yon, oh Yonebyeongsa, and we call that as a very easy position because there's nothing they actually do compared to normal soldiers. They only go to the most minimum amount of training. They only attend like、um, business events where they could use their talents as singers, actors, as、um, Um, I don't know. Program ding people. Essentially, celebrities were able to bank on their social and financial capital to get them into a special military unit with conditions that were much more favorable than what the average man would have had to go through. So why do these celebrity stunts even matter? And why do people get so worked up and sometimes even feel personally betrayed when young male stars try to pull some strings to get out of something they didn't even want to do? Well, simply because military service is something that on paper all men have to do. Regardless of social status, but this obviously hasn't been the case, especially in a society that is increasingly accused of catering to the privileged, as we've seen with the blowup of the whole scandal surrounding ex-president Park. Everything related to corruption and elitism is an extremely touchy subject, especially for millennials. I imagine it must be incredibly infuriating to see some people get better treatment over others, and especially so when it comes to a mandatory service branded as a heroic national duty. Because ordinary men, they have to give up their two years within like their most brightest stage of youth. They're really sensitive about this issue, and also depending on your school, your economic status, it can differ on where you go, where you're positioned.、Um, so that's a really sensitive issue. Forget the celebrities and their careers. Even for the average young man, the inevitability of the service of having to give up two years of your youth. This must be something that weighs heavily on all young men's shoulders. Like Julie said, you essentially have to leave your family and your friends and put everything—your education, job, social life—all of this on hold as you're thrown into a completely different world from your own, one where discipline, order, isolation, strict hierarchies, and sometimes even direct danger becomes your new norm. It definitely is an intense system. In fact, I think South Korea has one of the world's longest military service periods, trailing only behind Israel, Singapore, and of course. North Korea. So, speaking of North Korea, I guess it shouldn't be too shocking why South Korea needs a large and active military at all times.、Mm-hmm. As many of you probably know, the Korean War never officially ended. The two sides are technically still engaged in war since the North and South only signed an armistice back in 1953, which was basically just a ceasefire. So, some reports have indicated that North Korea has an army of approximately 1.9 million active personnel. And while men in South Korea need to serve up to two years, their counterparts in the North are looking at 10 years of mandatory military training—a whole decade. So, faced with these circumstances, it makes sense for South Korea to still have conscription. 
I mean, someone has to be ready to defend the nation, right? Right, and that someone ends up being the millions of other young South Korean men who need to put their lives on hold, and sometimes on the line. Someone like our friend Juwon, a soon-to-be PhD student and a former military recruit. I've done my military service in um, 2010 to 2012. Yeah, we are doing really serious jobs. <laughs> I'm not really combat jobs, but I'm still doing combat things. Um, I was in the mechanic division. We've engaged in train, training a lot. And um, I, I, I serviced in Kapyeong. It's um, North Gyeonggi province. So it's um, kind of border area with in, the, um, in my country's point is western border area um, against North Korea so uh, our division was um, tank division so our basic mission was to attack so um, so we are that's why we are in the a little bit uh, southern of, of the border so in the border area they are defending divisions so we are waiting for the you know they are when North Korea, because we will not go first, so <laughs> so our plan was like when North Korea goes south and then defend division, we'll defend and we'll prepare and we go attack Pyongyang. That was our plan. So this was Juan's personal experience in the military. As he explains, he was a mechanic situated right up against the western border area between North and South Korea. I'm sure everyone, depending on their placement and type of service, has different stories. But an important point that can't go unacknowledged is the North Korea factor. Indeed, and while we tend to engage in discussions of the military and North and South Korea relations through such macro lenses as international relations or global and national security, it's incredibly important not to forget the youth element in all of this. That is, all the young men who are directly caught in the crosshairs of geopolitics. This was nearly something that Juwon went through when tensions flared up between North and South Korea back in 2010. I was in 2010 to 2012. So 2000, uh, okay, September 2010 to June 2012. So uh, six months before I went to the military, there was uh, Yeonpyeong crisis. It was basically North Korea launched the cannon to the South Korean island. So um, Korean Marines actually, four or five Korean mar- Marines are di- dead. And then we also shoot back to North Korea. In March, like the... Cheonan ship was sinked by North Korean. So, and when I, so it, in November 2010, when I was in the military, uh, we have that kind of cannon event. Juwon is describing two incidents here. The first is the bombardment of Yongpyeong, an artillery engagement between North and South Korea back in November 2010, when North Korean forces opened fire on the South Korean island of Yongpyeong. Although North Korean motives are still disputed to this day, the official party line maintains that this was purely a retaliatory move against the South Korean military for firing into North Korean waters. This was actually one of the most severe confrontations between North and South Korea in our times, and it prompted very strong condemnations against the North from countries around the world, including Canada under former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. A few months later, another incident broke out, which is the second one that Juwon describes. This was the sinking of the ROKS Cheongnam in March 2010, where a South Korean warship was sunk near an island that sits in between the two countries, along the military demarcation line. This incident resulted in the death of 46 out of the 108 South Korean Marines on board. This was again an intense situation that made waves in international headlines as well. 
But while the world was scratching its head and debating the who, what, where's, and why's, let's not forget about our friend Juan. When we look at the incident from his perspective, and from the perspective of all others drafted at the time, these periods of intensified military skirmishes become more than just a geopolitical or diplomatic whodunit. I, including my, me and all soldiers, are really prepared to go to uh, war at the moment. Because it was like really, they shoot us, so we have to move. Like it was really serious. That that went like two months, I guess. Like like I have to sleep with the uniform, and then when I go out, I have to wear a helmet and gun, and then that was really serious for two months. So and then only after national holidays, New Year's Day, we can go to normal life in military. And that was really serious. So now, when we hear about news stories about North Korea's nuclear ambitions, or when we hear about cases where tensions have flared up between North and South in the recent few years, these things become so much more real and human when we factor in all the youth that are involved, and oftentimes involuntarily so. And on that note, while serving the country is supposed to be an honorable and noble deed, unfortunately, we learn from our interviewees Sarah, Julie, and of course Juan that sometimes the conditions in the service are less than ideal. Between the three of them, we heard tons of stories and complaints about the poor compensation and wages. First would be、um, the payment issues. They get around seventy thousand won for seventy, yeah, around seventy thousand, eighty thousand. They only get that from the military services, and、um, they sometimes they want to smoke or eat gummies, gums, snacks. You know, <laughs> you should spend some. Thing for their leisure, for their own pleasure, right? But they don't have sufficient money to do that, and they also have to pay their own money to call to the outside world. So that's not enough. So the families all have to subsidize anyway、um, to their sons, boyfriends, friends, guy friends, etc. We also heard other stories concerning medical treatment and even psychological well-being. And also another issue in military that I've heard is health. Um, when they get injured, they can't really get, they don't really get well treated. One was that my friend,、um, he was doing his service within the metropolitan area of Seoul, and there they had a lot of training sessions that they jump up from helicopters and they really do some terror、um, trainings. But when once he dropped off a helicopter and then he got injured and his he got his leg injured, but then he said that his leg hurts to his superior, but he didn't really send him well to the hospital at the right period of time because he said that oh don't stop whining I can't see you hurt stop whining you know everyone goes through this it's not only you then he kind of、uh, missed his treatment period so he can't really run that well as before and. Um, this is a really common issue that has gone through a lot of men who serves in the military. They get injured, then they go to the、uh, soldier hospital, but they're not really well facilitated again. And the doctors over there, they're not that much of an expert. So they say, "Oh, we've treated you," but it turns out to be that they weren't, and the thing that they were diagnosed was something absolutely different. It's not no not matter of. How you actually lived before the military service? Now you are in the hierarchy. Like it's kind of experiencing hierarchy. That's the first experience, and then that's、um, really harsh, actually. So、uh, I don't know. Like the seniors are really criticized a lot, even when you sleep. <sighs> yeah, that was really 
harsh life. And then I don't know what, why we have that kind of tradition. Maybe yeah, it was kind of under, understandable considering the really harsh, harsh situation in the 70s or 80s. But um, actually, we don't need such a thing. I'm sure everyone's story is very case by case, but I guess to tie all of this together, I think one of the biggest issues shared by many who have to go through this is the sense that they just aren't compensated properly enough for their efforts. We were told that during your service, you're pretty much supposed to be devoted entirely to the military, meaning that you're discouraged to spend your downtime studying or preparing for things you'll eventually have to do when you return to your life. For many young men, it feels like you've fallen behind everyone else when you return back to normalcy, and their next battle is likely waged against the curse of youth unemployment. So in light of all these less-than-pleasant anecdotes, we asked our friends what they thought about the service, whether or not it was necessary, if it's effective, if it should be changed, abolished, or if we should keep it as it is. Yeah, we have, we have diverse opinions on that issue, actually. But I think major opinion is that Korean men, even like those who have to do service, believe that mandatory service is re- really necessary because when we go to the service, then we see a lot of it, events and examples that actually North Korea is invading the South Korea. They launched the missile, and then those kind of experiences lead us, lead, like, you know, military service is really necessary. But actually, politicians are making promises that they, they will um, make a reform on the mandatory service. The most progressive one wants to make it as entirely voluntary service. So those are maybe popular. We may think like, okay, they may have some kind of effect on vote, but um, I don't think that that's our major opinion. Uh, when thinking of its necessity, a lot of my guy friends says yes, because they're well divided and practically we're still in war. So it's a necessity, but they talk about um, reducing the time, like the length of military services. But most of the things that I've heard was the um, enhancement of treatment for the soldiers. Necessity, I think, is similar to what her position. I also have talked to a lot of people. They never say, oh, we should not send anyone. It's more like, oh, we should send, but it has to be equal. Why don't women go? Like, why don't all men go? Like, it's more like, why are we the only one who have to put up the responsibility when the treatment is so bad? But also in regards to treatment in terms of bullying and like just general cultures in the army, I think one, they are changing. All things considered, I think that we can safely gather from our interviewees and their social circles is that as long as North Korea remains a threat and relations are still unstable, military service is needed. But reforms should definitely be made within the military culture and more should be done to ensure better conditions to the draftees. But Sarah brings up an interesting point at the end here, when she speaks about the fairness of the service along the lines of gender. This was a point that Juwon brought up as well, actually, and he explained to us how this is a very big topic that comes up frequently, especially on relevant online forums and comment sections. And we have kind of a lot of replies on the news article. When the issue on conscriptions are there, then then major replies are like this. Why women don't do this? I don't know. And also more specific replies says only men go soldiers. But women goes, you know, captain and more upper upper class. And women can go military, but not as soldiers. Just soldiers, I mean, footmen. The men are complaining about it as well. Also, we have rare news, but we have now news about um, 
Korean women are actually put in the field work job. I mean, like women usually do kind of information or support or like those, you know, desk jobs are usually women things. But some women are now riding um, airplanes, jet planes, and then also um, they're in the really tank division as well. And those cases are now appearing. Yeah, so I think like it goes better. So, if conscription is in place, should it be extended to everyone, regardless of gender? This is definitely an interesting debate that touches upon a whole web of other complicated issues, like the already problematic concept of traditional gender roles, which Juwon sort of brought up as well. So, I'd like to throw this question out to our listeners: If any of you out there have any opinions you want to share about this, or about anything else you've heard in this episode, tweet us your thoughts anytime at Youth Element. In the meantime, here's what one of our interviewees in Taipei has to say about the same question, but in regards to the military service in Taiwan. Like Israel, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so. 就是如果我觉得大家觉得就是 like Taiwan, Taiwan is is our homeland, and so we need to protect, we protect、uh, our home. So I, I think it really doesn't matter if you're. If it, you're female or male, 就是大家都应该要一起 But I don't think there will be many <laughs> girls who would accept this. So, so this is Eric, who, when we interviewed him, was just a week away from heading off to complete his own military service in the city of Taichung. On that note, I think it's time to island hop. Rejoin us, Eric, and some other Taiwanese friends after the break when we switch gears and explore youth perceptions of mandatory military service there. We'll see you in Taipei. Welcome back. Picking up where we left off, we painted this pretty intense story of North versus South Korea, which was made so much more real through Juwon's vivid anecdotes and personal experiences in the field. We looked at how there seems to be a general understanding amongst youth that, despite all their complaints and all the flaws in the system, conscription is needed. In fact, with North Korea factor at play, we probably won't see conscription scrapped anytime soon. And as exemplified by strong collective sentiments of betrayal when a celebrity tries to weasel out of his national duty, we can gather that there's definitely a certain degree of patriotism and heroism attributed to completing one's national service. But through our conversations with some friends in Taipei, we kind of got a whole different vibe. There's zero patriotic spirit. So this is a very blunt way of putting this. But be it as it may, what would prompt our friend William here to feel this way about the service? In fact, William isn't alone in feeling a little less inspired by the current system. Some serious debates over completely replacing conscription with an all-voluntary service have emerged several times in recent years at the highest level of government. Before we get into this, let's go back to why Taiwan has mandatory military service to begin with. Taiwan's current conscription system was born out of a very complex web of events within the context of the Chinese Civil War, the Second World War, and eventually the Cold War. As most of you are aware of, all of these conflicts and geopolitical episodes have left behind a rather contentious and, you know, as we have seen from that infamous phone call between President Trump and Taiwanese President Tsai, a very complex relationship between what we now know as mainland China, the People's Republic of China, and Taiwan, the Republic of China. 
And today, the term cross-strait relations is used to describe this relationship between these two political entities. But despite what a lot of mainstream media says, we think that the likelihood of an escalated war between the two is actually pretty low. While many see this relationship between China, Taiwan, and by the extension the United States as a geostrategic hotspot, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that things may not be as tense as they once were over 60 years ago, and it's just not in any of the mentioned parties' interest to engage in a full-out war. So, given this context, what purpose does keeping conscription serve? This is not an easy question to answer by any means, but according to some of our interviewees, a lot of this comes down to politics. Well, okay, so I think the reason why the service still exists is before, well, well politically, like the Taiwan is still facing like the, the pressure from mainland China, and so for the, those boys born after ni- 1994, they'll have to do the military service for four months after the undergraduate degree or after their master's degree. And for those who were born before 1994, they'll need to do that for a year. And yeah, and I think the reason why it still, it still exists is before like mainly because because of the political reason. So this is Eric again, who, as we mentioned earlier, was just a week from joining the military himself. It's funny because when we interviewed Eric, he was just about to go get a buzz cut. Yeah, the buzz cut is like the mandatory hairstyle for men in the military. So this discussion about the military really was something that impacted him a lot. And he definitely had a lot to say about it. But I think for, for the young people um, nowadays, they don't, we don't really consider this service is necessary because well the real training in the troops are kind of old-fashioned they're recycling and or even like training us how to use the bayonets and like nowadays like and also like the, the system like since most of the officers in the military are more than 40 or 50 years old and so like their value are quite dif- different from us. So Eric thinks that a lot of the typical military drills are very outdated and that there seems to be a generational disconnect between the higher-ups and the draftees. Yeah, this just reminds me of Obama's epic dig at Romney in 2012. You know when he said, we also have fewer horses and bayonets because the nature of our militaries changed. Apparently five years later, the nature of U.S. political debates have changed too. But anyways, we digress. So yeah, William had some similar qualms about the utility of the current military service as well. William completed his service a few years back, actually, and this is what he had to say while reflecting on his experience. At least among people like me who are required to do it, so we do it. We're not out of our own you know, patriotic like um, spirit, so we decide to do it. So a lot of the times people are just like, yeah, you know, like the easier the job, the better. Like we, we don't care like what we get out of this whole year. Basically, most of the people, well, including me, think that that year was a waste. And um, it's something that it's basically a year that we will either use to uh, study for like um, or pre- pre- prepare for the future. So the, 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 the notion or the... Um, yeah, the idea of like actually using this here to uh, uh, solidify national de- defense has never, I think, crossed 
90% of the people's mind when they're in the military itself, yeah, because we treat it as like a chore, like you said, because it, it's required. If it were not required and they put in more incentives to, uh, you know, get people to willingly serve in the military or spend some time in the military, I would say that would have um, be more helpful than setting a law saying everyone. So now it's like um, they set a rule for everyone who were born before the year of 1992 will have to serve in the military. And only those that are born after that year would not be required to serve in the military yet. So I think that's a big reason why uh, people are treating the military service like, I don't know, trash. Yeah, disposable. Both Eric and William clearly had some reservations about the utility of the whole system. But for both of them, I guess the biggest complaint is how disjoint the system is with what they consider to be the norms and values of today. It's like, if I'm legally obliged to give up this time of my life for this, at least I would want to feel like I'm getting the most out of it. Actually, one of my high school friends, James, who now lives and works in Taiwan, just completed his service not too long ago, too. I caught up with him in Taipei during our trip in February, and I remember seeing how his phone's homepage was set to this timer, counting on the days until he would be free to return back to his regular life again. And like the stories of many people we talked to, this is just something that people expressed that they had to unfortunately get over and done with and move on with their life. So we can kind of imagine this sense of anticipation that people have to finish their service. James also mentioned that he had a desk job in the military, which he was kind of grateful for because it was more lenient than other positions he could have ended up in. He also told me that some other guys ended up being chauffeurs the entire time they were drafted. So this actually brings up an interesting point about what serving in the military might actually look like. Because to me, when I initially thought of the idea of conscription, I would immediately think of something more akin to what Juwan experienced in South Korea, when really, you could just be drafted to do a desk job like James. In fact, we learned that there's actually something called substitute army or civil service, which some guys ended up doing instead of the regular military service. This is called Tidai in Mandarin, and it basically allows you to perform a special alternative service that requires a certain type of more specialized skill. So for example, there are a number of Taiwanese government departments that will allow for special service, such as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Education, or the Ministry of Culture. So one example is that if you can speak English, your substitute army service could be that you can teach English. The service is actually three months longer than the normal service since it's considered easier. Here's Eric again on some of the other alternative services he's heard about. You really staying in the troops, but the other, there is another choice that uh, you could choose to stay. You're just like you're not really in the troops, but you might probably uh, assist the police officers, or you go to do the job, uh, doing jobs like firefighter, or like staying in the elementary schools to help uh, helping the childrens. What Eric was basically saying at the end there is that there are a lot of jobs that you can do within the Tidai substitute service. It's easier, but your time is extended, so you kind of have a choice to do that if you really don't want to do the regular service. 
The substitute service was implemented in September 2000, and the idea behind it was to create a dedicated pool of human resources that could allow the government to extend its ability to provide public services. So there was also this dual intent to help improve various aspects of society through this more community type of service. But it would still attempt to incorporate elements of military training into it, like the need to stay in a compound or the emphasis on discipline. So while there's definitely those who question the utility of conscription altogether, there are those who think that there is a meaning and value in the substitute service, Eric included. The truth is, comparatively, Tidai、uh, is much more like、um, meaningful. Yeah, comparing to you saying the troops, but、uh, for for Boys in the age like me, for us it's just the same.、Uh, it's not really wasting our time, but yeah, like every, almost every one of us would like to finish it as as soon as possible and like finding a job like we really want to do. Yeah, because because no, nowadays we don't、uh, we don't really think there will be a real. Like battle be- between like countries, and so what we care the most is just how to like、uh, save the money to to live in Taipei, and then how to find our own balance. Yeah, I think I think it's the same for for all of the young people, no matter where where you're from. Like today, we're more concerned about what we're doing. 活的就是更有意义一点，然后嗯 ，Yeah, this is where our conversation with Eric got real, especially in his last few lines. What he's basically saying is that as a young person, no matter where you're from, what concerns you most is how to live your life more meaningfully. And like he says, that means finding a job you're passionate about, worrying about saving up for your future, and even finding a special someone to share your life with. So there might indeed be a political imperative or reasoning as to why the military service exists and is of use to Taiwan, but to a young man, it's nonetheless something that they felt was an interruption to the already complex web of things that make up their lives. But if anything, I think that one thing that Eric, James, William, and even Juan in Korea all thought was a redeeming quality from their experience was the sense of a common bond that they feel that they now share with other men. This is the memory that will probably make us easier to to make a new new male friends. <laughs> 就是大大家都觉得这是一个 suck memory. In this sense, having completed your service might actually help you make new male friends down the road because you all have the same experience you all went through. Might not be the best experience, or as Eric so elegantly puts it, it's a sucky memory, but it's a shared one that everyone can relate to, nonetheless. In another sense, we can see the military service almost as a coming-of-age story for men, where you grow up and take that one step closer towards adulting, whatever that means. Yes,、yeah, so it's definitely like a chapter of life post high school that just happens to be so intimately tied to the geopolitical reality of your respective society. It's like a rite of passage that just happens to revolve around the military and all the values of discipline, order, and perhaps even camaraderie that it tries to instill. And this we've learned from a friend from China. It's not all that far off from how she described the military training there, which is actually a mandatory for all students from junior high to their first year of college. More on that after the break.
So China's military, the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, is talked about constantly in a lot of news headlines, with many commentating on its sheer size and seemingly growing capabilities. According to mainstream security experts, China has the world's sixth largest military with about 3.7 million people in both active and reserve personnel, and it's the world's largest military if we're counting the number of active personnel. But these large figures shouldn't at all be that shocking, considering the sheer size of China's entire population. In fact, I believe that China does actually legally have conscription, and it applies to all Chinese citizens. However, this has actually never been enforced because the PLA has always had enough people enlist voluntarily. But while men in mainland China are indeed spared from a similar fate as their counterparts in South Korea or Taiwan, there is, on the other hand, still a sort of military training that is mandatory for all students in China, regardless of gender. Formally, this is called the Law of the People's Republic of China on National Defense Education, but more colloquially, it's just referred to as military training, or junshun. On paper, junshun serves the purpose of quote popularizing and strengthening education in national defense, carrying forward the spirit of patriotism, promoting the building of national defense, and furthering socialist culture and ethical progress. End quote. So whether students are in junior high school, high school, or university, everyone will participate in some form of training. As one article from the China Daily explains, military education is supposed to be quote an opportunity for students to discipline their will, toughen their bodies, as well as learn some basic military information. End quote. It wouldn't be military training if there wasn't some sort of discipline component, right? But for a better idea of what happens during this military training, we spoke to Michelle, someone who went to school in China and has gone through the training not once but three times. Okay, so、um, for my personal experience, like junior, I have done like three times for my whole life. One is at junior high school, high school, and college. So basically, for like college, we have to to do like a four week like a military training, this kind of thing, and for junior high school and high school, usually that's two weeks, maximum two weeks. So it depends on the uh the schools, uh they have different policies. So this is the funny part. Like for four weeks, every day is like a eight to five, but we will have lunch break, these kind of things. So in the morning, we will usually practice like a standing and a parade step. And in the afternoon, like I said, we will have a scene practice. And during the four weeks, we only have one time shooting practice. And it's not like everybody can go. It's like it has limited、uh, number. Like only a certain amount of student can go. It's like only one time thing. So it's not that military, I can say. And in at the end of the training, we will have like a review. So the head of or the military instructor and our university president or something like that. Uh, there will be like we will do that at the playgrounds. So there will be a platform. Like you know that. Have you ever seen the Chinese like admitted PLA that President Xi review the PLA that kind of thing? Pretty much the same. So they will say like, 同志们辛苦了 So yeah, we will say 为人民服务 So each like uh, uh usually it's like um the whole day we ha- we have to do that. So it's like a review of all the four weeks 
for the military practice. Here, Michelle is describing her experience with the Junshun, and more specifically, the four-week mandatory training program she underwent right before her first year of undergrad. We can tell from her explanation that it's basically a combination of physical training and ideological teaching. In that last bit, she likens their experience almost with how a real military parade might look, with the commander in chief, President Xi, standing atop a central stage, addressing a crowd of military personnel by saying very typical things within the CCP's doctrines, like "同志们辛苦了," which literally translates to "comrades, you have worked hard," and this is a sign of love and care from the state to the people. And another one is "为人民服务," which means to serve the people, and it's probably one of the most central political slogans used by the state, beginning with the Mao era. Um, yes, during the four week, we also have to write blogs, so mostly like ideology, this kind of thing. Because we also have some. Sometimes we will have a class in classroom, so they will teach us like a handbook, something you have to read it, then write a blog about it. So that could be the、uh, that's the ideology part, and. Yeah, and the songs we sing together, like a sing、um, competition, is all about ideology. The songs I sing, like the military will sing, and、um, so yeah. And、uh, when we do the training, and you know that it's in summer, and the most part in China is like super hot. And we are not allowed to move or any other thing. We have to wear the uniforms, so it's no other class、uh, or no other clothes. It's like、uh, we have to wear uniforms. So every time we complain about the hot weather and sort of these things, they will teach us. Think about like、uh, you as a military, that、like、you are sacrificed for your country. So yeah, don't move. So this, <laughs> so always like this. So I think that's the ideology part. In the digital sphere, there's been a lot of debate about the purpose of the whole military training. Some criticize the treatment of people during the training for what can be regarded as too physically extreme. And within Western discourses, many criticize the whole system as being a form of indoctrination, attributing terms like brainwashing and state propaganda to the discussion. But is it really just an overly strict system that aims to predominantly brainwash kids? We picked Michelle's brain a bit more on this to better parse out some of these ideas and the debates surrounding the infamous Junshun. I think it still has like its good part, like for you to get to know your college student and、uh, classmates. So still has a good part, and since we have a good relationship with our instructor, it's not like a torture or something like that. So, to me, it still has good part. I don't think it's like brainwashing or something. It it might be to some of the people, but it's not to me. So, yeah, I will argue with them that it's not brainwashing. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that Michelle probably didn't enjoy standing as still as a statue in the blazing heat all day, and I'm sure she would have much rather traded in the heavy military uniform for her own clothes and spent her time listening to the latest Jay Chou album instead of reciting those old school songs of patriotism that her parents' generations grew up with. But complaints aside, I think an interesting point she brings up at the end is how, despite all of the challenges and sucky memories. There was that redeeming factor for her, which was having the opportunity to really bond with her new classmates before starting undergrad together. So, if you think about it this way, Junshun is kind of like Frosh Week. 
except instead of what we're accustomed to here with, say, nightclubs and awkward icebreaker games, it's more like a strict military boot camp theme frosh. Because for the first week, that's the very first time for you to step into college. You always want to make friends, to meet people, but that's the only time you meet each other, except like uh, your roommates, right? So yeah, it's like parallel. You have to attend, but you hate the physical part, and you hate like you have to do the blog. But that's for credits, and that's the way you meet friends. So for me, it's like a paradox. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I think it's for me. It's like, I think it's more like a way to know each other. It's more like orientation. But I don't know why the format has to be a military training. Naturally, Michelle's views cannot represent the experience or opinions of all youth in China. But I don't doubt that there isn't a larger subset of youth who might share similar views with her, and that there is a weird frosh-like element to the whole thing. So, with that said, it might not be entirely accurate to dismiss the whole thing as being a brainwashing exercise by the state, or that it's something that really places actual military training at its core purpose. There's definitely truth in this, for sure, but I don't think it's the entire picture. Perhaps the idea of jingxun is more nuanced and multi-layered. It's definitely a complex combination of things like principles of civic duty, patriotism, and discipline, and its origin is definitely rooted in some even more complex chapters of China's recent history, most notably the contentious Tiananmen incident of 1989. But to the students going through it today, the Jingxun is a paradoxical balance between a sucky memory and a period of time where, after years of intense schooling, cram schools, and preparation for one entrance exam. You're likely leaving your home for the first time and finally entering a new stage of maturity and independence. And I think this is something that is relatable across all of our cases today. But suffice to say, the military is definitely something that greatly impacts the lives of our East Asian counterparts. Looking at the topic of military from the perspective of youth, at least for me, really opened up my eyes to see how the seemingly big topics typically unassociated with youth cultures, like national defense, geopolitics, diplomacy, and statecraft. Actually, cannot be parsed out from the discussions of youth and what it really means to grow up in a certain society, and it's really the differences here that have really helped parse out how youth deal with and think about some of these issues that might not even cross our minds here as citizens in North America. And even for those who join the Canadian military, it's something that they do by choice, not by a form of mandatory service. But there are similarities, of course. I'd say that Canadians do have a reputation of being peacekeepers, with youth historically and in present day being especially vocal against war and armed conflict, and we're not shy to take to the streets to protest. But interestingly, a small but nonetheless prominent segment of youth in Japan were, as of recently, demonstrating a similar disdain towards war and military action, and more specifically. They were riled up over debates on the possible remilitarization of Japan under current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. For more on this, tune back in next week as we begin our special series all about youth and political engagement, starting with our friends in Tokyo. This podcast was supported by the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada's Postgraduate Research Fellowship Program. Songs featured in this episode include "Tricks" by Boxcat Games. Corporate Innovative by Scott Holmes. Special thanks to Sarah, Julie, Juwan, Eric, William, Michelle, and the rest of our friends and participants who shared their insight and took the time to be interviewed. Note: some of the names of participants have been changed for privacy reasons. 
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada.